Yeah, and uh, it seems to me that the, this is where kind of thinking about the notion of demands is really helpful. That I think about, you know, we were talking before about things like Medicare for All and the Green New Deal, and you look through these checklists the different candidates have, um, and some people have treated these things as purely as if they're policy and critique them on those terms, and they, they, they clearly have a policy, you know, dimension to them, but they're also meant, I think, as demands. They're meant through the making of those demands to try and produce um, the possibility of getting there. Um, they're kind of a their leverage in making it. And so demand making is a way for us to challenge the terms of debate. Welcome back to Left Anchor. I'm Alexi the Greek. And I'm Ryan Cooper. Um, and today we've got a uh, very special guest, Dave Kybe. Um a uh, organizer with DC Jacobin, the the OG uh, DC Jacobin um, reading group uh, guy, and uh, and the organizer of the Metro DC DSA Night School. Co-organizer. Uh, um, I don't want to. Yeah. <laughs> Do you not want to start off on an exclusionary note? You want to be. Not, yeah. <laughs> yeah. So and, and it, welcome to Dave. Yes, welcome, Dave. And also just a, a man of many talents, a political theorist extraordinaire, lots of pedigrees that we won't even mention because he's a humble guy. <laughs> All right. Glad to have you, buddy. Thank you. And so today, um, uh, sort of uh, restarting our Black History Month um, series, we're going to be talking about uh, two sort of classic texts in the in the um, you know s- civil rights tradition, I should say. We've got the, the 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 famous letter from Birmingham Jail by Martin Luther King Jr. And then we have um, maybe somewhat le- lesser known, but still an important essay by uh, Iris Marion Young. Uh, called Activist Challenges to Deliberative Democracy, um, which is a, a more of a theoretical uh, rather than kind of rhetorical work. But but I think they complement them each other in a in a um, a good way. And so um, yeah, we're gonna gonna talk about those things and. Uh, you know, see what, see what, see where we get. Right. Yeah. Now, Dave, I, I, uh, theorist that you are, I knew you would appreciate the Iris Marion Young. Did you appreciate how these two, uh, readings went together? Did, did you enjoy reading them together? What, what did you see in, in that pairing? I did. And I, for me, the thing that jumps out the most, at least initially in terms of the connection is <clears throat> kind of, um, rejecting of a politics that ignores power if that's Mm. if we can say it that way in both cases you have um, authors that are responding to people who are trying to talk about politics as if there's no power involved which Mm. means talking about politics in a way that um, is very status quo reinforcing Um, and so each has some really tremendous insights about that but um that's a you know important point of contact between the two that yeah. really speaks to my thinking as well. Right. Yeah, so I think that's a 
that's a great point you're making about the way that both both intended audiences, both of uh, MLK's letter and really of the audience academically for Iris Marion Young, right, who was um, a great political theorist, uh, a white woman who uh, I think shows in her piece that there's a necessary tension between uh, the deliberative Democrat or deliberative democracy and, and the activist approach and understanding of um, politics. And what strikes me in what you said, not just the, the ignorance of power in politics, uh, but the way that in ignoring power, both, I think, the, uh, the reverence that Martin Luther King is writing to and also the academics and deliberative Democrats to whom Iris Marion Young is writing, they have a kind of moral superiority that goes along with ignoring power in politics. Like, like you are, uh, you are dirtying things that are otherwise clean by bringing up um, power and by doing things that are causing what is otherwise kind of a smooth process. I, I, I found that that's an interesting thing. I think Ryan, what did you think about uh, these two readings together? Um, it, it's, so my sort of general my my ins- instinctive take on it is it's like a kind of a th- theory and practice discussion um you have a a uh you know someone someone who is like maybe a little background here you know so this is in um 1963 right during the uh, the Birmingham campaign when they when they're like uh, the you know Martin Luther King and the rest of the civil rights movement are are protesting Jim Crow and and uh, you know as as a, a result of like marches and and um, you know direct actions sit-ins against segregation uh, they kind of got themselves deliberately arrested and thrown in jail. And, you know, with the point of sort of pointing out the 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 unfairness and the, um, you know, the injustice of the of Jim Crow racism in the South. And uh, so, you know, as as such, being in the middle of that campaign, King's letter is like pitched at a kind of broad, like political objective to say that. Um, you know, the, the, our tactics are, you know, are, are well considered and, um, you know, here are, here are our, uh, you know, justifications for, for what we're doing and here's what we're trying to achieve and here's why you people should be joining in. And so, um, you know, the, 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 even though I think it, 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 Works very well as a a kind of quasi theoretical text as, as in itself. The 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 point of it pretty clearly is 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 polemical. Um, on the other hand, you know this the the young uh, article, which which I had never read before, by the way, um, is is more is much more theoretical and it's much more about trying to sort of draw out the contradictions between you know on the one hand 
the um, discursive kind of liberal democratic idealist approach about achieving sort of common ground between uh, people and um, finding through debate and discussion, like what is the sort of ideal solution for things. And on the other hand, you know, the, the activist approach where you, uh, you know, you, you sort of like try to force your way onto the political stage by protests, by demonstrations, by disrupting the, you know, the daily business of, you know, the political assemblies or, you know, just like uh, daily life, you know, blocking cars on bridges or things like that. Um, or even so, just the, the NFL protests, even just the kneeling at the NFL games, right? It could be that simple. Yeah, yeah. Trying, trying to, trying to draw attention to things through uh, uh, direct action. Political, right? yeah, political tactics which are not uh, discussion based, I should say, and uh, and 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 sort of coming in an activist tradition, which is critical of the. Uh, deliberative um you know the 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 kind of like you know we we could reach a agreement through a rational discussion lens and so and that's you know in that sense it's like it's it's very it's 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 pretty intellectual but i like the way that it interacts with the the letter from birmingham jail because you know, on the one hand, you have a man who has just been arrested for doing direct democracy, like like protests and violating the law on purpose and being thrown in jail. Um, but on the other hand, he's writing this thing to right. justify himself yeah. through that's through right. rational discussion. And, um, you know, and Young, like, Young says that's OK. Right. She says that's normal, that these things do go together. Right. There are some things yeah. that are intention. Right. But but they also and of course, you know, we brought on uh, Dave who, who runs right reading groups and dis- you discuss and debate. And, and of course, you have argument involved in, in political change. But the question is, is that sufficient? And, and I think that's the problem is thinking that that's sufficient. Yeah. And the, the flip side is it's and I think you, you hit on that nail on the head that it's mistaking that sort of activity, which is essential for kind of politics or for the 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 all of politics um and you can make the flip mistake which is where you then say well none of those things matter right like intellectual activity doesn't matter discussion and debate don't matter and you know we don't want to make that same kind of opposite mistake um where you know let's just act and we won't you know we don't have to think about anything um, but it's really about kind of having everything in its place. And so, you know, for my motto that the always notion is the ways that intellectual activity, uh, can be used to serve our larger political purposes. Like if we want to see change in the world, um, this is valuable. Um, but if it becomes unmoored from political activity, if it becomes an end in itself, um, it's a very different sort of thing. To, to paraphrase a wise man who has this in every email he sends, something like, we need to turn soldiers into thinkers and thinkers into soldiers. Is that right? Or fighters? Fighters, yeah. Fighters, That's the, fighters, fighters, the yeah. General Baker quote. He's one of the organizers of the um, Dodge uh, Revolutionary Movement um, organization. Yeah. I mean, Marx had a line about this too, right? So 
philosophers have only sought to interpret the world. The, the right. point is to change it. And, and not only that, but right, it requires material force to change material conditions, but theory itself becomes a material force when it seizes the masses. Mm-hmm. So, so, so there is that interconnection. And, and here, I think MLK is, is doing just that, and it, and it is more rhetorical. There is more pathos, but there's definitely theory in it, right? Um, so, so I think, you know, maybe we should – do you want to dive into to the MLK piece a little bit? Uh, there's some great passages. Sure. I, I will note at the very outset, he notes, seldom, if ever, do I pause to answer criticism of my work. which is a great like identification that he is not this quintessential deliberative democrat right just engaging in discussions all the time well it gets even better because the rest of the line is something like my secretaries would never do anything else right (laughs) so it's clear who would actually be doing the labor in that situation yes and i take it easy on my secretaries constant criticism that that I, i would have to respond to right it's a great, great, you know, Martin Luther King is an unparalleled uh, rhetorician. You know, yes. he's he's he says, if I sought to answer all the criticisms that cross my desk, my secretaries would have little time for anything other than such correspondence in the course of the day, and I would have no time for constructive work. But since I feel that you are men of genuine goodwill and that your criticisms are sincerely set forth, I want to try to answer your statement in what I hope will be patient and reasonable terms. Since that seems to be what you value, patience and reasonableness, here we go. Right? Um, and that's a the that's like the perfect like it's sort of preview and encapsulation of the 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 MLK approach which is like yeah no, you know on the one hand sort of you know s- skeptical of debate as a way of solving these in itself but on the other hand not going to put it down as a as a rhetorical right. device either exactly exactly it, which means it's it's more uh agile broad in scope in terms of what tools need to be used to effectuate change. It's less complacent, right? And, and, and that goes with the next, uh, basically, series of thoughts, which is about this criticism that he's an outsider, um, which is kind of on its face ridiculous within the confines of your political community, the United States, right, to be an outsider. Um, but but his point kind of, I mean, kind of goes to that notion that we'll see in, in both texts, which is that elites like to exclude from the discussions, exclude from the decisions as many groups and people as possible, and to say that this is not for you to decide, it's for us to decide, right? So, so I think there's, there's a theme here that the activists object to, this, not just the status quo decisions, but like those people who think they're in charge of setting the terms and setting uh, which people can be involved in making them, right? Yeah. Um, and you know, the, the way, the way he sets up this, um, you know, the, the, the art, um, prefigurative sort of, sort of situation, because like, you know, the, the thing about Jim Crow back in these, you know, you're talking about Birmingham, Alabama, right? Uh, this is like the heart of the Deep South. The Jim Crow system is a, is just like a sort of terrorist racial caste state. 
in which people are systematically deprived of their constitutional rights, live in fear on a daily basis of their their lives and their physical security. Um, and he and he says uh, uh, there can be no gainsaying the fact that racial injustice engulfs this community. Birmingham is probably the most thoroughly segregated city in the United States. Its ugly record of brutality is widely known. Negroes have experienced grossly unjust treatment in the courts. There have been more unsolved bombings of Negro homes and churches in Birmingham than in any other city in the nation. These are the hard, brutal facts of the case. On the basis of these conditions, Negro leaders sought to negotiate with the city fathers, but the latter consistently refused to engage in good faith negotiation. Um, yeah. And, and that's a big thing too, right? So, so, so the, the deliberative Democrat, right, says that rational open discussion achieves political change. And that assumption is people of goodwill, if they're persuaded rationally through good arguments, will simply cede power when they realize it's been used incorrectly right it's a, it's a very interesting picture of human nature and, and uh, immediately the term uh used is negotiation which from our carl schmidt episode is not what actual deliberative democrats think is going on because negotiation implies power and so uh negotiation already is different from deliberation negotiation is, is assuming there's power involved and what mlk is saying is we've not been allowed to the table to, to negotiate from our position. And, and of course that makes sense. So we need to force that negotiation. Right. And I love, he brings in this, uh, Socrates example. Uh, Socrates, of course, the gadfly who's annoying everyone. They ultimately killed him because he was so annoying with his damn questions. Right. Uh, and so basically we need to be the, the nonviolent gadflies. Right. He he says, um, just as Socrates felt it was necessary to create a tension in the mind so that individuals can rise from the bondage of myths and half-truths to the unfettered realm of creative analysis and objective appraisal, we must uh, see the need for nonviolent gadflies to present or to create the kind of tension in society that will help men rise from the dark depths of prejudice and racism to the majestic heights of understanding and brotherhood. So activism is actually a kind of uh, creative tension that forces people to to understand uh, what needs to be done. Yeah, and, and I think this gets to the larger point of um, a lot of the ways that people think about politics, like orthodox kind of understandings, standard understandings, act as though um, there are some mechanisms whereby um, change that is needed happens automatically. So when people have a need, when people have a problem, um, that there are mechanisms that will automatically translate that into change. Um, and I think that's not true. And I think King's kind of getting at this, that you need, uh, the people need some sort of activity to force these sort of questions onto the agenda, to force them into the discussion. Um, there's nothing that makes that happen automatically. Um, and certainly, I mean, I think that's always true. But one of the nice things about reading kind of something that's, um, an original document from the civil rights movement is it's much harder for us today to look back then and say, well, of course the political process would have worked that out, right? You've got a one party state, it's a white supremacist state, black people are completely excluded from the political process. Um, 
economically subjugated and I could go on. Um, we, we looking back in that moment in that place, and it's real easy to say, well, of course, um, the normal political channels wouldn't work, even though that's what was being said to King and others at the time. But to me, as much as things are today very different than, you know, nationwide than in that place in that moment, it is still true that there's nothing automatic that makes that happen. And so I think it's actually really helpful for us to look at this, you know, stark example because its lessons apply much more directly than we might think. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, it's 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 certainly not the case that today, you know, there are like whole categories of people who are just like denied the right to vote in certain states. But it is the case that we have this just immensely hype, like hypertrophied, however you however you pronounce that. Got to butcher one word in episode. Just this bloated <laughs> um, police power uh, that you know far outstrips the like like. It's funny. I was I was watching some some videos of uh, police protests in France. Um, and you know, like the the uh, officers there attempting to sort of like beat down some of these um, uh, the the yellow vest protesters, and setting aside any of the uh, you know substantive content of that. One thing I notice is that there's no armored cars, there's no uh, assault weapons, there is no like air support or any of the other kind of uh militarized police the, the the i mean they had riot shields but it's not the same kind of like full body armor as if you are like invading you know fallujah in 2004 um <laughs> and and it, i mean to an extent which i think considerably outstrips the 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 violent capacity and the armaments of the police in the jim crow south that's right. Um, did you did, did you see in the yellow vest protest the video of like the superhuman protester who was like be- beating back like a dozen cops just with his fists? <laughs> like in, in in the states, that guy would have been like they would have dropped a bomb from a helicopter on top of him or something. Yeah, I mean that's happened as a historical matter in uh, in Philly, right? I know uh, that's that was my it, reference. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, the, the move, the move, uh, firebombing. Yeah. And so when you have the kind of like political justification for it, you know, where uh, the the society feels like like the power structure feels like completely off the chain and you're, you know, like unauthorized immigrants or something, the amount of just, um, you know, police pressure brought to bear on people is really, really quite considerable. And maybe I think in certain limited circumstances comparable to Jim Crow. You know, if you, if you are looking at, uh, um, you know, people trying to escape from ICE, or if it's just, you know, all the stories of, of um, individuals trying to uh, avoid... Um, just travel across the country, you know, the stories of uh, ICE agents coming in and just, like, interrogating or arresting anyone who speaks Spanish. Um, 
we're not so far removed from those days as we think. You know, it's different and in many ways better, but it's it's uh, you know, the 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 American democracy is 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 in uh, not nearly as inclusive or nonviolent, non-coercive as people like to pretend. I think to your point, Ryan, is that people that reaffirm this deliberative democracy process almost implicitly have to assume that the status quo isn't that bad. Right. So like it doesn't really matter if it's today or the 60s. What it means is that like radical change is worse than the status quo, which means the status quo can't be that violent or can't be that bad just by like definition. Right. Um, Yeah. Like that. That's the assumption. Like otherwise you would be in favor of like, yeah, let's get like bypass these fucking procedures. Let's just get some shit done. Right. No, no, no. Like, let's talk about it. And I mean, look, it's 1963 and these are not. Right, white supremacists, these are other people of faith that are, you know, otherwise fans of MLK that are like, whoa, I think you need and this I don't know, Ryan, if you remember, of course, in Black History Month we we already discussed Frederick Douglass's um speech on the you know on the fourth of July. And doesn't this remind you of how he also was told, like we're we're sympathetic, but you just can't approach it this way. Stop being so emotional, just be a little calmer and use reasoned argument. <laughs> Right. Yeah. It goes back forever. The history of time, the people that have the privilege to not suffer at the hands of the state or of the powers that be. Right. They can sympathize. And this will get to the to the quote about the white moderate, of course. But they can, they can sympathize with the pain of the oppressed, but they're not in a hurry to do anything about it. Yeah. Yeah, they're. Um, as I as I believe you, you said before, Dave, like like the they're. they're like pe- people can be, you know, as you um, might say, like of Hillary Clinton's campaign, enthusiastically in support of social justice, so long as like the possibility of actually achieving it is in the far distant future. It's not actually on the agenda. Remember that the primaries with, uh, well, of course, we've repressed the primaries with Bernie and Hillary. But like if you bring back those repressed memories and you remember one of the debates about like the $15 minimum wage. And she said something Hillary did to the effect of, well, yeah, if it's already like done and accomplished, that would be fine. But like actually pushing for it would be a problem. (laughs) You know what I mean? Like I'm not going to suggest that, but if it happened to a occur on its own well then that would be great you know what i mean i think that what you're hitting on is key to kind of understanding certainly american politics but i think much more broadly i think it applies to say european social democracy over the last few decades which is um as well as the united states this sense of if people were truly mobilized on behalf of things and if people were truly willing to kind of ask what they needed and what they deserved as opposed to letting those the terms of the debate be imposed on them and to just kind of choose among the choices you're given um there's no telling what might happen and so what the democratic party in the united states does is it tries to mobilize people in these very discreet moments in these very discreet ways so come and vote for the Democratic candidate who's been chosen, you know, maybe write some checks um, to the people we, you know, have officially approved, um, you know, and post on behalf of whatever, you know, the party is kind of pushing for at that particular moment. But 
there's no sense that people on their own have any sort of initiative to push anything. And I think the recognition is, is if they do, um, it opens up a whole host of possibilities. One of the challenges for, you know, party leadership is that it potentially puts them at odds between, you know, their popular supporters and their donor class. That's um, right. It could just make them larger targets. Um, and I think that has been the case for, you know, social democratic parties has been the case for the democratic party in the United States. Um, and so it helps make sense of a lot of things, the sort of like, well, why don't they just do X um, mm-hmm. sort of thing? The Republican Party keeps its side mobilized constantly. Um, <laughs> and, you know, they have suffered to some extent for it. But, you know, it's kept them in the game, despite the fact that for the most part, their agenda is deeply unpopular, um, whereas the Democrats whose agenda is you know, less deeply unpopular and relatively popular, um, depending on what we mean by their agenda, um, aren't willing to do that. And I think it's because of that, because they're worried about managing people more than just winning out. They have well, a strong incentive I, yeah. in making sure that the Republican Party stays in the game um, in a way that the Republican Party does not. Well, and here's the difference, right, of course, which is that the donor class on the right can just has to like swallow being attacked with populist language by say Trump and that faux populism of the right, but they get their tax cut. They're going to get the actual money they want. Right. And, And the way that happens is that the base gets pacified by, you know, othering Mexicans and Muslims and simply like, like cruelly imprisoning migrant children and denying asylum. All the, those things don't harm capital. They don't give a shit about that, right? So the, the the thing, the red meat for the base on the right, that doesn't actually either address the needs of the base, actually, but neither does it harm capital. Whereas the left, if they really are getting what they want, that does harm the donor class. Yeah, I think a little bit, it can on the edges. So, you know, for example, uh, the anti-immigrant stuff has the potential, given ha- like there are industries where that rely very heavily on, say, undocumented labor. Um, and so, you know, sometimes those people are going to feel the effects of that sort of thing. And sometimes, you know, there are things that they've been able to stave off. Um, but for the most part, I think you're, you're absolutely right. And so you, what you'll see it is you'll see it on the edges, um, but not as a fundamental challenge. And I think also there's a recognition that if if it really came push to shove, like we'll make those sort of changes, you know, for, you know, for example, there are people in the anti-immigrant movement who would be very upset by, say, the creation of some sort of guest worker program. But enough people would get behind that if, you know, say the hotel industry or the agriculture industry needed that. Right. So there will be people that will peel off. So, you know, there's limits to how much this stuff is going to blow back on them. But the key, I think, is procedural. Like you said, the power brokers have to be in the room and they have to decide what's okay and what's permissible, right? And that's why the Amy Klobuchar's of the world are like, well, maybe Medicare for all one day, but at least for now I can say there'll be something better and let's not go crazy. I need to check with everyone in our boardroom meeting to see what the power brokers and their interests will like agree to in that non-democratic negotiation of elites, right? I think it was uh, that then that whole interview when she was saying no 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 <laughs> uh, uh, no to Medicare play. for all no to Green New Deal. We gotta play that clip though. We have to play that. 
just to... sure we'll stick that in but but uh do you support no. free college for all i am not for free four-year college for all no shout out to 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 twitter guy rob rousseau i believe who said that he he was ready to be concussed by the flying coffee cup of pragmatism. <laughs> well, and, and that's what MLK is talking about. So when MLK writes in his letter where he says, we know through painful experience that freedom is never voluntarily given by the oppressor. It must be demanded by the oppressed. Frankly, I've never yet engaged in a direct action movement that was, quote, well-timed according to the timetable <laughs> of those who have not suffered unduly from the disease in this case of segregation for years. Now I have heard the word wait. It rings in the ear of every Negro with a piercing familiarity. This wait has almost always meant never. Yeah. Well, and while we're, you know, not, not that I love kind of hammering too hard on presidential politics examples, because there's a whole world of politics beyond that. But, you know, there's another line in here from King Grace is lukewarm acceptance is much more bewildering than outright rejection. And I'm just thinking about, you know, Klobuchar is a kind of interesting case because she's positioning herself as this no, no, no candidate, um, which is very inspiring. But there's a whole whole bunch of other folks who are, you know, getting behind these things. You know, it's like checking a box. Um, And it just reminds me a bit of in 2008 with, for example, the Employee Fee Choice Act, where the entirety of the Democratic um, Senate caucus and the vast majority of Democratic candidates all got behind this. And as soon as they took office, people started saying, well, you know, I don't actually support this thing that they had, you know, run on. Some of them had co-sponsored. you know, I'm thinking of recently that uh, Mitch McConnell announced that he was going to force the Senate Democrats Democrats to vote on the Green New Deal. And multiple people in Democratic circles were treating this as like some sort of dirty pool. Um, and it's not the first time they did this. They did this on Abolish House, too. Um, and it's a real good example of where, you know, people are taking these positions because they feel that they're um, it's costless. And I think they know that um, for their elite supporters, uh they understand that those people those people understand that they're just saying a thing. And so Republicans actually can use this against them um, because then suddenly they're going to going to run away from it. Um, and yet that's where we are. Well, it's no wonder that the centrist uh, milk toast. What, what do you call them? Uh, Coops uh, limp dishrag liberals or something. <laughs> limp <laughs> dishrag be- centrist. Centrist is a beautiful, beautiful image. Uh it's no wonder that they like to just identify with ideas theoretically and just like say things because that's also how they view identity politics and say race and sex. It's like, let's have a, some tokenism going on here. Let's just have like a symbol, right, of addressing the underlying causes of sexism or racism. And then we don't really need to address the actual structures and actual consequences of those structures, right? Yeah, and especially you don't need to raise anyone's taxes or set up any kind of like redistributive programs or nationalize any companies. All that is definitely coloring outside the lines. Um, is that a pun? Did you just do a play on words? <laughs> but the no, I did not. I that was non intentional. <laughs> but you know, if you you look at someone who you know. 
like you you see uh in 2016 Hillary Clinton um you know mouthing the language if not the substance of of intersectionality a word which is pervasively misunderstood in in kind of like popular discourse and you look at who she's going to appoint labor secretary who is actually apparently Howard Schultz was in the running to be labor secretary stop it stop it is that true a man who was who is literally blackmailing the Democratic Party, saying, uh, "Elect a centrist who won't raise my taxes, or I'm going to run as a third party and throw the election to Trump." That's basically his uh, his pitch, and he said as much explicitly. Um, and so, when you see, you know, the, these these lefty ideas have gotten a tremendous amount of media traction, um, and really, you know, you you. You saw a lot of a lot of candidates who aren't even trying to be lefties signing on to the Green New Deal sight unseen. And I think that, you know, this 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 teaches us here, you know, that this um um you know, King's King's observations about the 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 white moderate and people who are just like whenever anything is sort of uncomfortable or, or changing too quickly uh, kind of instinctively pull back. We ought to be pretty suspicious of, you know, you, you, you ought to require a high credibility bar. Is there, I think there are numerous candidates, congressmen, senators who are signing up on stuff because they think that, Oh yeah, this is a nice slogan. I don't really care about it that much. I will ditch it at the first hurdle. I, you know, and I may already, you know, in the case, case of like Nancy Pelosi staffers, be actively conspiring with the healthcare industry to stop Medicare for all, um, because you know, too disruptive. Um, and here's the, here's the quote from MLK, right? So he says, <clears throat> "I must make two honest confessions to you, my Christian and Jewish brothers." First, I must confess that over the last few years, I've been gravely disappointed with the white moderate. I have almost reached the regrettable conclusion that the Negro's great stumbling block in the stride toward freedom is not the white citizen's counselor or the Ku Klux Klanner, but the white moderate who is more devoted to, quote, order than to justice, who prefers a negative peace, which is the absence of tension, to a positive peace, which is the presence of justice, who constantly says, I agree with you in the goal you seek, but I cannot agree with your methods of direct action, who paternalistically feels that he can set the timetable for another man's freedom, who lives by the myth of time and constantly advises the Negro to wait until a more convenient season. Shallow understanding from people of goodwill is more frustrating than absolute misunderstanding from people of ill will. And and this is what Dave brought up earlier. Lukewarm acceptance is much more bewildering than outright rejection. So I I think it's funny that you brought up uh, Howard Schultz, because I don't know if you all remember, but it wasn't that long ago that uh, Starbucks announced that they were going to have the baristas engage people in discussions on race. And just so we're clear, I think your average barista is not paid enough to do it, but is probably well more qualified to have these conversations than Schultz or your average Democratic candidate. However, what I, I, the flag for me, the red flag, is that we're going to have discussions, as is always the case, around race as opposed to racism. Yeah. Um, it's very <laughs> unclear to me what that means. Yep. Um, but that 
pres- it seems to take for granted that we're not going to talk about structures. We're not going to talk about violence. We're not going to talk about stratification. It's about, you know, you have a race and I have a race and that's okay. <laughs> um, so, which is, you know, it's not, again, well, <laughs> I think I like discussion, but it's unclear why that discussion is particularly valuable. But then the other thing I'll say is while, I, you know, I agree entirely, and this is this through thread from going back to King to the stuff we're talking about today, um, about this desire for no discomfort as we have these conversations, desire for not dredging up larger things. Um, it's it's also the case. I think it's really easy for those of us on the left to read this and say, oh, you know, the 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 white moderates, they don't want to do this. You know, that on the left, we're much more comfortable talking about structures. We're much more comfortable kind of talking about power. Um, but we're not always comfortable, especially white leftists, about having those uncomfortable conversations. And we should just be, we should be equally willing to kind of experience that tension, to have that discomfort. Um, those answers are not easy. Um, and so I think we can have that criticism and then also be careful about only uh, worrying about what other people need to do instead of the work that we all need to do as well. It should be a, a new tagline for left anchor. Come on and get uncomfortable. Let's, 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 let's get all uneasy together. Uh, no, that's true. That's good. Um, I think that's right. But not with your barista because they're not being paid enough. No, they don't deserve that. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, that's another instance. The whole, I mean, right. In Philly, um, the idea was, well, if we just have some, again, deliberations, some just discussions, then that'll satisfy it. It's a process that people engage in, and uh, that'll be that. <laughs> right? There needs not be any concrete ends served or any understandings in particular sought. Just uh, there was a process about race. And well, the discussions have the, are, are an end in themselves. Yes, ex- exactly. Well, and it feeds into this notion that racism is about like some people have mean thoughts in their head, and they don't they don't realize that other people have a different color, it, which you know. So, if white people could only you know understand black culture, then everything would be fine. We should prescribe some hip hop, and then they'll know all they need to know. No, so so I mean. What what do you think? And Ryan, since you read uh, this Iron Marion Young piece for the first time, did you find it a persuasive? And it wasn't meant, I don't think, to be just mere critique, but like showing the tension. And I think at the end of the analysis was uh, kind of a paucity of understanding of politics that the deliberative democracy stance has, because even if it has answers for um, what to do in those kind of processes to make things a little more fair and equal, it at the end of the day has to reaffirm the status quo um, and the legitimacy of the status quo. And the activist always says, well, wait a minute, doesn't that just reproduce those wrongs? Is it, don't you have to fundamentally challenge that very structure? Like, did you find that a persuasive critique? Um, yeah, I, I, I definitely, you know, this, this, this very, uh, I really like the way this is reasoned. It's it's you know maybe perhaps a little bit ironically. It's very clear and it's very convincing in its argumentation, um, and it really puts a a nice kind of bow on the uh, the problems that I have with a lot of like the like the, a lot of the ways that kind of 
centrist liberalism tends to sort of portray itself and try to operate. And, um, you know, you, you have the inherent exclusion of, uh, you know, dissenting voices and deliberation. And, um, I think maybe, you know, what I found most interesting is like towards the end of the essay, she talks about, uh, hegemonic discourse and how uh the 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 way that the sort of dialectic of conversation can come to sort of systematically exclude uh dissenting perspectives and that is a a thing which which strikes me as like incredibly relevant to to the way that you know the last kind of 10 years of uh you know and well it means probably most of american history has has played itself out um he 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 or sorry she says uh the phenomenon of hegemony or systematically distorted communication is more subtle than you know just like like deliberate um Exclusion. It refers to how the conceptual and normative framework of the members of a society is deeply influenced by the premises and terms of discourse that make it difficult to think critically about aspects of their social relations or alternative possibilities of institutionalization and action. The theory and practice of deliberative democracy has no tools for raising the possibility that deliberations may be closed and distorted in this way. And so I think that's a that's a something that is very uh, important to keep in mind, and is also difficult to keep in mind. The idea that like there may be sort of differing ideas that are sort of placed beyond the um, uh, you know the the realm of discussion, and that you may yeah. be unconsciously uh, delimiting your solution space due to how the the sort of discourse has been uh, constrained. Yeah, and uh, it seems to me that the, this is where kind of thinking about the notion of demands is really helpful. That I think about, you know, we were talking before about things like Medicare for All and the Green New Deal, and you look through these checklists the different candidates have, um, and some people have treated these things as purely as if they're policy and critique them on those terms, and they, they, they clearly have a policy, you know, dimension to them, but they're also meant, I think, as demand. They're meant through the making of those demands to try and produce um, the possibility of getting there. Um, they're kind of a, they're leverage in making them. And so demand making is a way for us to challenge the terms of debate, to expand our notions of what's possible and what's desirable. Um, and that's kind of missing, I think, from the mainstream discourses is talking about those things. And it's also interesting, I think, as we think about those checklists, how some of those things truly are demands, Medicare for all, for example, and then other things that sometimes make in the list are not. So one of the ones that I noticed the other day is criminal justice reform gets on these lists a lot. I mean, that, I don't know what that means. It has no, it has no content and it has no force as a demand. Right. Um, I don't know. I mean, obviously something like abolish ICE is a related demand 
that I think is helpful to think about. But it's also somewhat, cons- you know, it doesn't ca- cover the whole ground. That's a great point. I don't know what the demand would be. That's because it, it's a procedure. Reform is a procedure. So to say I demand criminal justice reform means I demand a procedure. Yeah. It's like demanding deliberation. Yes. Let's think about, let's think more about this. Let's think about it. Let's change it a little bit. Well, and it's even better because one of the things that people who have looked in, you know, looked at criminal justice issues, issues around policing and prisons have said prisons in particular arose as a, a reform when they, when they started and reform discourse has always been central to legitimation of prisons. So there's no such thing as not criminal justice reform. Like, yes. It's always yes. imbued with this notion of reform. That doesn't mean it's always getting better. I remember I remember a conservative scholar telling me, oh, you don't like mass incarceration? Well, that's because progressives wanted to reform the system. <laughs> yeah. You know, he's like, so, so much for reform. But no, that I, I, you know, there is something about activism that demands and that this Socratic gadfly thing makes a lot of sense because it's like, you have to, to like shake people into challenging the assumptions that they're making about what's okay and what the standard norms should be, right? Like the the very uh, assumptions about, and this goes to like the free speech on campuses, right? This this notion that like, of course, free speech, you know, and and there's there's no power involved in deciding what that range is of opinions that are held, right? It's just like objective and natural and sui generis, right? Like. Uh, it's the same kind of naturalistic error um, that activism tries to like upend and say, no, no, there are choices about these fundamental premises that are being made, right? Yeah, and and go ahead. Well, I was saying that um, in in the free speech debate, um, which I think we see parallels in a number of other things we've talked about, the assumption is always that we need to bring a reasonable conservative and a reasonable liberal or on college campuses because they're irreducibly liberal, of course, um, or, or left, which is even more hilarious, um, <laughs> that it's really important to bring on conservative speakers so you can hear the other side because there's one other side. <laughs> there's two sides, and yeah. That's to right. me, like, aside from the fact that I – you know, of my own political commitments, I think that bringing in Angela Davis on your college campus to talk about, you know, abolishing prisons is going to do way more to challenge your preconceived notions than hearing someone talk about how maybe black people are inferior, as if any of us have lived our lives in the United (laughs) States, not hearing that black people are inferior or that women, you know, can't do certain things or that poverty is deserved. We soak that discourse in all the time in this society but there are left ideas that could really raise people's hairs unthinkable just as shown in conservatives and liberals but that's not actually on the table because it has nothing to do with actually challenging people's minds it's about maintaining this notion that the way that you do politics is have the reasonable conservative and reasonable liberal sit down this is the west wing theory of politics right. we'll have a you know a conservative who knows the um lyrics to the pirates and panzans and you know <laughs> is quick-witted and yes you know they want to cut social security but maybe we'll just cut it a little with them you- <laughs> 
So, so Wittgenstein has this fascinating separation of what he calls certainty from knowledge. And he says certainty are things that you never question, that, that you just assume. You don't need re- – like anything that you need to have reasons for, you can have doubt and have reasons against. And that's the realm of knowledge. And there are things you just assume, right? And so, so for example, if someone said to you, uh, I know that I have a hand – you wouldn't look at them like they were incorrect. You look at them like they're crazy. They're like, uh oh, this guy's on on drugs or something. Like, what's the problem? And so, similarly, um, if somebody says, "I think black people are inferior," you'd be like, "No, let me tell you why that's not true." Because that's within the realm of debate. That's like in the realm of knowledge. We 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 don't assume that that's incorrect as like a certainty. That's just we got to debate that. But if somebody says, "Oh, did you know that you don't need to be a wage slave and actually like your food and shelter and all these things like there's no reason you have to pay for any of that or work like those can just be provided for you?" My students will literally look at me like I'm crazy like a crazy person. And 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 they will look like they just took a huge bong hit. Like they have no idea like they're just like totally unsure how to respond uh, because it's so out of the realm of consideration, right? And this is why Frederick Jameson says it's easier to envision the end of the world than the end of capitalism, right? Mm-hmm. Well, yeah, and, yeah. and what sets the terms of that? Like what lets us know the things that you take as necessarily true versus up for debate versus necessarily false? And it's just power. That's it. And so it's really interesting to think about the way that power very clearly determines these questions of like what we're supposed to debate versus what we're not when that whole debating perspective tells us we shouldn't be asking or thinking about power in the first place yeah yeah and i think i just wanted to mention uh quickly as an example of uh you know a kind of demand that you could make as a concrete matter um the uh, recent uh news story on um the DA of of Philly Larry Krasner a year ago he said that he would do no more money bail for a big long list of minor crimes so this is a you know a fairly moderate um uh like policy in the grand scheme of things but nevertheless uh, uh the the list made up 61% uh according to uh philly.com of of all the cases in the philly um you know court system and uh he said that over 2018 1750 defendants were released without bail no increase in recidivism and the 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 there's a 22% decrease in the number of defendants who spent at least one night in jail so you know it's not a it's not a kind of like uh super utopian demand but in the context of sort of you know, the last 20 years of American criminal justice policy to say, like, no money bail for all, like, misdemeanors or whatever it is, is a substantially radical. And, you know, the the effects in this case were completely anodyne. No change really whatsoever in the functioning of the, the court system. It was just that a bunch of people didn't go to jail. Yeah, the distinction I might make here is between 
uh, a bold demand, which I would say is kind of a broader category. And then within that is the utopian demand. And so here I would put this in the category of a bold demand, not sure. utopian. And the reason I would do that, and I think it's really important, is literally nothing else had to change. Right. They just changed <laughs> yeah. the rule and everything worked fine. Yep. So to a utopian demand, the key of it is that it would re- like it's it's um, something we can envision. It's it seems possible, but also it would require changes in the way the world is. And so that has value both for forcing those sort of changes, but also intellectually for ourselves in envisioning changes we wouldn't have otherwise thought possible. So th- this is so much smaller, and yet it's it's also valuable, you know, and to kind of circle back to what we were saying before, to me, the demand, the, the potentially uto- more utopian demand um, that maybe would fit in that longer list is something like decarceration, um, mm-hmm. where we just say, you know, we we have too many people in cages and so we should be that number should be going down and not by a little it should be more like a 45 degree angle instead of like a three degree angle which is you know people talk about ending mass incarceration and almost always that that's like oh you know we reduce the increase by so much um but you know to truly say like caging people is horrific and so if we're going to do it, we better have a really, really good reason. One of the other things that Krasner's done is to require, um, if I remember correctly, DAs have to look at the costs of imprisoning someone when they're deciding what to charge. Um, and there they're just talking about the cost of the city. It would be great if, I mean, and it's hard to justify often then because those costs are so high. It would be wonderful if we would also think about the cost of that person, the cost of their family to their community. Um, you know, I always think of this in terms of the people talk about, oh, well, you know, if we if we make drugs legal, people start to use them and it'll have all these differences. And of course, like people use drugs all the time. There's no no evidence that making it illegal stops that. But, you know, incarceration is pretty harmful too. Like putting someone in a cage does all sorts of harmful things. And somehow that doesn't get put in that balance. It's only like, well, you know, maybe if someone somewhere uses marijuana, this awful thing could happen as opposed to like, but when they go to jail, when they go to prison, all the things are definitely going to happen. It's kind of finding that sort of balance. No, that's right. And, and, you know what was a massive utopian demand? Uh, freeing the slaves. And and guess and yeah. guess get guess what? Four million people that were formerly slaves now have to be integrated into a white supremacist society. Oh boy, shit! I don't know how that's going to turn out. That seems like a really hard <laughs> thing to predict. Uh, can you imagine all of the technical problems figuring out what we have to do to make that possible? Like like. Of course, there are there are ways we can't envision the details and like the actual like consequences of doing something that's good and right. That doesn't mean we shouldn't push for it, right? Like, it's 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 so sad to see uh, the powers that be naturalize oppression and then say, "Look, it's very unreasonable and emotional of you." to demand that we do things that we can't foresee what the consequences will be, right? When, like, the consequences of the status quo are so violent, as Dave just talked about, and so traumatic and so harmful, right? And that that this is the kind of pernicious um, Gramscian superstructure problem, right? Where, like, what's normalized as morally acceptable, right, and reasonable is that we don't, Stir the pot because everything is fine right now. Some people are complaining, 
But really, these radical changes could really disrupt things. And it's just such like the opposite of, our, of what we might think of as cold, calculable reason, right? It, it actually ignores very many facts and very many realities. Uh, and it's, it's just so pernicious. And that's, that's why there, there's appropriate anger and frustration in, in the activist challenge to it, I think. Well, and if, if the other layer to this, to, to kind of really like take it up a notch, is that the status quo will also involve tremendous change. I think this is one of the things that gets missed is that it is not the case that if we just don't try and fix things, that they'll stay the same. They will change. Like Peter Fraze talks about this a lot. There's no question there's going to be tremendous change. The question is, will we try and exercise some like collective control over it? That's it. That's the only distinction. Think of it in in the example you brought up of slavery. Imagine the possibilities of what slavery would have looked like if it had if the Civil War hadn't happened. It would have changed in you know, it's it's hard to say what it would have looked like, but it's very unlikely it would have looked like the same thing as it did in, say, 19 or 1860, that it would have looked the same in 1880 in that alternate timeline it wouldn't have there would have been tremendous change like that's always a given the only question is do we try and exercise control over it right and and are you did ryan did you have you read the four futures by peter phrase uh yes i have and 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 dave was that one of the works of his you were thinking of i think so yes yeah and and that goes to that point which is that like you know, if you assume, say, automation and you assume these climate change issues, um, depending on what we decide for ourselves, there's there's these four possible futures, right? Um, and so, you know, people that are comfortable where they are now need to anticipate what what's going to be given those realities and uh, and not abdicate the duty to, to control it, right, as much as we can. Um, so... I don't know. To, to bring it back to the to the two texts a little bit, what do you think? So, so here's if I may be for a moment, kind of a devil's advocate for the deliberative Democrat, or uh, you know, try to to kind of push the issue a little bit. There is this notion that, and look, if you look at HR one and 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 what a lot of um, a lot of people like Greg Sargent came on the podcast and talked about this. A lot of uh, well-meaning Democrats uh, are really all about is not having power politics bypassing special interests. And so so there's a, an answer, I think, in, in the Iris Marin Young piece about this. But here's a question. Why do activists on the left, for example, differ from activists on the right, if you will? And why are activists on the left not just the special interests that deliberative Democrats are seeking to kind of uh, transcend and avoid power politics in, in, in some enlightened sense of, of truth and justice. Like, isn't there a sense in which, you know, activists are simply the, the very factions and special interests and lobbyists uh, against which deliberative Democrats are seeking to, uh, to find a better way? Uh, you know what I mean? Like, like so, so there's this challenge, like what makes us different from other special interest groups seeking to, to exert our power, right? Well, I mean... I'm going to go back to some old political science. I'm going to go back to E. Schatzschneider, who um, was a political scientist writing in the 50s and 60s. And he talked about this issue in the terms of interest groups, where at the time and since then, political scientists wanted to put kind of everything into an interest group. So 
you know, if you wanted to end the death penalty, interest group. If you wanted to kind of have subsidies to oil companies, an interest group. And the notion was, well, you know, as social scientists, it's all the same. So we shouldn't distinguish. And what Schatzneider said, among other things, is that the people trying to end the death penalty were not themselves like they weren't the ones that were on death row. Right. So there's a difference for are if you are um, if you're arguing for something that is uh, in favor of you in a very narrow sense, we can distinguish that from you arguing for something that doesn't um, necessarily help you, but helps other people. Um, and then the third category, which I think is important, is if you think of something like Medicare for all, it's not delivering benefits to a small group of people. It's delivering benefits to practically everyone. And so to kind of just say, well, you know, that's just an, another interest, I think collapses some really important distinctions. Yeah. So, so if you go back to James Madison and Federalist 10, his definition of a faction, right? And he said, you know, of course, like one of the primary goals of a well-constructed union is to, to break and control the violence of faction. Uh, a faction is a group who has a shared interest or passion that is either adverse, right, to the rights of other groups or adverse to the common good. And insofar as, like, leftists are factions, the group they're adverse to is capital and the very elite and very powerful, but definitely not adverse to the common good, right? And I think that's a major distinction you can make. Yeah, Yeah, no no question. question. Well, I, I just wanted to kind of go back to the text for a second, and I'm kind of touching on something that people had said before, which is um, Young talks about kind of this notion of people that kind of accept things the way they are and kind of will do this deliberative thing without trying to, like, you know, bang on the doors or anything like that as kind of presenting themselves as reasonable and that those who would challenge that are understood as an unreasonable or even extreme. And again where the only thing that's determining kind of what puts you in these boxes is the existence of power. And so, you know, my takeaway is that it's on the one hand, you have this notion that we're not allowed to talk about power, and yet power is everywhere in this. It's not these people don't understand power, they surely do. And sometimes it is, um, sometimes it's disingenuous, sometimes it's not. but it's, you know, I think you said before, it's it's almost a kind of it's distasteful. And I do think one of the things that happens for liberals is they see people on the right kind of really aggressively exercising power. And instead of saying their goals are the problem, because that's actually not something that you, you know, that's kind of disfavored as a claim in liberalism to say that the goals are the problem or to talk about the goals, um, to treat them as if they're up for conversation. Um, It's to say the means are the problem. And so if the means are the problem, then the left and the right are the same. Um, And I think this is where you get that sort of the nonsense of horseshoe theory and things like that. Well, but let me ask you this, Dave, because we just had on Robert Hockett, who is, you know, the I don't know if he's the chief advisor, but it seems like the, the chief advisor to AOC on the Green New Deal. And he was talking about how, you know, he thinks that um, in terms of the left, there are there are liberal politicians who um, maybe they're really Republicans in, in Democrats clothing. You know, they, they, they actually don't have the same ends as as the left has. 
but that mostly the problem is centrist Democrats who don't believe that it's possible to achieve things the way that the further uh, leftists believe. And so, like, I don't know if it's Joe Biden or whoever you might think about, if they thought it was possible, they might be for Medicare for all or whatever, right? I think it's both is the answer. And it's very hard to tell. I mean, the one thing I would say is when I see Democratic politicians going out of their way to announce that they are capitalist. Right. Um, I think that is yeah. they don't have to do that. Elizabeth Warren doesn't have to do that. That's a right. choice. Right. right. Yeah. Um, and I, I, it's interesting in her case, because the people who might be assuaged by that coming out of Pelosi's mouth are not. I mean, they hate Elizabeth Warren. It's not going to make a damn bit of difference to those people. Yeah. Um, but I think it's I think it's genuine. Um, so the way that I, I tend to think about this is that there are people who. So I I put myself in the bucket where I would say there is no way to solve our problems to kind of build that sort of just society that I want and I think a lot of other people want um, unless we dismantle capitalism. Um, okay. There are people yeah. who who take that the opposite side that is like that is not possible they are or yeah. or not desirable that they see as defending capitalism is important and there's a whole lot of people in the middle who probably just aren't thinking about capitalism right and it can be it can be very difficult to tell the difference between those sort of things and fundamentally what i would say is i'm a big believer that all these things are uh need to be hashed out politically that if you look at, to me, I was saying this the other day, the toxicity you see a lot happening kind of in left, left liberal debates um, and sometimes within left debates, I think is because instead of treating differences as political, we're treating them as a question of legitimation. Like who is legitimate to speak and who is not? Um, we all make that distinction, but I think a lot of people are doing it much too early. Um, and... So, but I, so my point, I think, is that we we need political conversations where we're worried a little less less about kind of dunking on people or deciding who's in or who's out, worrying about like the content of people's you know brains and kind of what they believe. Um, but like their claims are what matter. And to me, when someone makes that sort of claim of like I'm a capitalist, right. regardless a, of what's in their problem. brain, like that itself a is problem. a problem, and it's. It is actually really valuable, I think, when you have the same sort of person who just refuses to say that. That's a step in the right direction. Which, um, which scares me because literally Elizabeth Warren is the only person other than Bernie Sanders that I feel like has any integrity or principle on the left so like that's running for, for – but but like isn't, isn't Obama the deliberative Democrat par excellence? Like isn't he the example when, and how he addressed health care, which like – I mean, he definitely, and this is where Robert Hockett's analysis is correct. I think he definitely wants as much uh, success in extending healthcare for everyone. But I think he definitely thought, look, the only way this is possible in capitalism, because he even said, if I was doing it from scratch, single payer, but I'm not. So I need to bring big pharma to the table. I need to bring the insurance companies to the table because I recognize their power and I recognize that they're going to exert their power. And so I need to get them in a room and, de- and negotiate with them. Right. And, and, and I just think his, his, his understanding of what was politically possible and his understanding of political change was the driving thing, not 
that he was uh, a secret Republican and didn't want Medicare for all, right? And, and that is a scary thing when we have so many people that are um, yet to be radicalized and, and that want to be political who um, are inhibiting that push, right, for, for what we deserve and, and, and are actually helping the Republicans because of their limited imagination and, and limits on what they think is politically possible. Well, it is scary, but it also the the nice thing about that particular situation is it's changeable, right? If someone is just hostile to our goals, it's very hard to move them. But if someone thinks like, sure, and, and you know, and I'm, I don't think this is just an elite thing. You see this all the time with, you know, regular people sort of like that would be great, but, you know, it's never going to happen. The nice thing about that is that that's changeable. When, you know, when candidates run on things and win that like people thought, oh, you can't do that. Well, when they do, it shows that you're wrong when you, you know, when you can move a policy forward, when you can do it, you know, at a local level, at a state level, there are ways in which political action can address that problem in a way that you can't address it when the problem is the person having their hostile goals. So it's scary and it's a challenge, but it also gives us leverage. But the leverage is not, and I think this is the mistake people make a lot of the time, the sort of like, I'm going to yell at you and explain to you that this is possible, or I'm going to show you the polling, or I'm going to tell you about what's happening in all these other countries. I, those things can be valuable, not the yelling, but like those sources of evidence can be valuable. But I think um, at a certain point, if someone is hopeless, the way we give them hope is not going to be through charts and graphs. It's going to be through political action, but that's possible. That's right. And that's why Iris yeah. Marin Young, she writes that one of the activists goal is to make us wonder about what we are doing to rupture a stream of thought rather than to weave an argument. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I think that's a good note to end on. Um, uh, Dave, Dave Kive, thanks for coming on the show. Thanks for having me. Um, yeah, and we we'll hope buddy. to have you back sometime. Yeah, come come back soon, my friend. All right. Last but not least, we have a friendly reminder that we have a Patreon. You can support the show with $5 a month and get an extra episode every week. Uh, we really appreciate the support, and it helps us keep this going.